Before beginning, I do want to point out that we'll be talking about some racism in this episode. Unfortunately, these are some things that happened in history, but hopefully by learning about them, we can learn how to avoid repeating these mistakes in the future. On today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with the 1992 film Malcolm X. Between the years 1963 and 1965, journalist Alex Haley had some in-depth interviews with human rights activist Malcolm X. Then, in 1965, after Malcolm was assassinated, Alex finished the story before publishing the book simply called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. The 1992 film is an adaptation of that autobiography. The screenplay for Malcolm X, the movie, was written by both Arnold Pearl and Spike Lee, the latter of which was the director for the movie. After its release, Malcolm X was nominated for two Oscars, one for Ruth Carter for Best Costume Design, and the other going to Denzel Washington for Best Actor in a Leading Role. They did not win either. Best Actor went to Al Pacino that year for his role in Scent of a Woman, while Best Costume went to Aiko Ishioka for her work on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Knowing that 1992's Malcolm X is based on an autobiography, it'd be normal to go into the movie expecting a lot of what we saw on screen to be historically accurate. Well, let's find out. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things that we need to do. If you're a long-time listener, you already know what those are, but if you're new to the show, welcome. The first thing we need to do is to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Malcolm X was assassinated in front of his family. Number two, Malcolm X spent over five years in prison before converting to Islam. Number three, Malcolm X wrote a letter to President Kennedy while he was in prison. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. By a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and not to get too sidetracked, but I chuckled the other day when a listener whose name will be redacted contacted me saying that he was appalled by something I said on the show. It was a disgrace how I was trying to make something so wrong seem as if it was a fact. He was actually quite rude about it. Well, as it turns out, he was referencing the lie in the two truths in a lie game. Apparently, he thought just because I said it that I was trying to say it was true. Anyway, once I figured that out, I just congratulated him. You found the lie. Congrats. I have a feeling he didn't listen to the rest of the show. Oh, well, but I thought that was funny. So before you go thinking that all of those three things are true, no. One of the things that I said is a lie. That's sort of the whole point of the game. (laughs) Okay, so now that our game is set up, the last thing we need to do is to... Find out what we'll be covering next week over on the producer's feed. Oh, wait, you know what? Uh, Looking at the calendar, next week is April 1st. So everyone is going to get the bonus episode. It's not just going to be on the producer's feed. 
I suppose I could keep it a surprise like I have the past two years, but I guess at this point when you're covering a trilogy, it's not really a surprise anymore. So two years ago, I released a surprise bonus episode on April 1st covering The Fellowship of the Ring. It was a little April Fool's joke. Then last year, it was The Two Towers. So you guessed it. That means this year we'll be covering The Return of the King. What comes after that? Well, I guess I have a year to figure that out. (laughs) So even though that's an episode that everyone will be getting, both on the public feed and the producer's feed, I'll give you a little peek behind the show and let you know that when I covered the two towers last year, that took 31 hours to create that episode. And since The Return of the King is a good half hour longer than the two towers, I'd expect it to take even longer to create this year's episode. And like many podcasters, this is a show that I do in my spare time. So much for sleep this week. (laughs) I don't have any tears or anything like that if you want to support the show. It's just pay what you want. So even if it's a dollar a month, that'll really help me get motivated to work on next week's epic episode. If nothing else, it'll help fund the coffee that I need to get it done. And of course, once you're on the producer's feed, you'll get access to all of the past bonus episodes and mini-sodes. There's hours of content over there and any future ones that are added. You can get access to the producer's feed by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Okay, so I know that was a little longer than usual and we've got a lot to cover. So let's continue on as we compare history with the movie Malcolm X. Our movie today begins with someone introducing Minister Malcolm X. We can't see what's happening because this is just audio going on behind the credits, but we can hear a crowd cheering as he's introduced. Then we hear Denzel Washington's version of Malcolm X narrating a speech. He begins by saying, quote, Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that I charge the white man. I charge the white man with being the greatest murderer on earth, end quote. As the speech audio continues, the credits continue over an American flag for a brief time. Then the camera cuts to some very grainy and bouncy footage. The credits continue on this way, cutting back and forth between the U.S. flag, which slowly starts burning into the letter X and the grainy footage. It's... Some disturbing footage. We see a man on his knees in the foreground. There's a car in the background with the driver's side door open. It's hard to see exactly how many men there are in the footage, but we can see at least three or four men standing around the man on the ground. This is when it gets disturbing when we start to realize what's happening. The man on his knees on the ground is being beaten by the other men standing around him. It's tough to watch, but it sets a strong tone for the movie up front. Denzel's voiceover as Malcolm X continues as the footage does. The speech that we hear Denzel Washington's version of Malcolm X giving was not really a speech that the real Malcolm X ever gave. Although it's worth pointing out that it does have bits and pieces from a speech he did called The Ballot or The Bullet. But overall, it's been changed around from the movie into what some reviewers have called the, quote, I have a nightmare speech. That's based on what Denzel's version of Malcolm X says at the end. Quote, we don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare, end quote. 
This is the filmmakers playing off Martin Luther King Jr.'s very real speech called, quote, I have a dream, end quote. That speech was given on August 23rd, 1963, and it called for an end to racism in the U.S. by way of civil and economic rights. So it's a clever play on Dr. King's speech, even if the exact speech we hear Denzel Washington's voiceover giving isn't a real one that Malcolm X gave. As for the disturbing footage, though, unfortunately, that is real. The man on his knees in that footage is Rodney King. The men standing around him, beating him, are members of the Los Angeles Police Department. This happened on March 3rd, 1991, just before the movie was released, when Rodney King and two of his friends were stopped by the police for speeding. Many of the details of the incident didn't come out until later, but as a general overview, the three friends had been drinking. So when the cops tried to pull them over, Rodney, as the driver, tried to outrun the police, something Rodney King admitted to later. The chase only lasted about 8 miles, or about 13 kilometers, before the police had Rodney's car cornered and it came to an end. Later, the officers who responded would say they thought Rodney King was going for a gun when he moved, but he didn't have any weapons. The officers ordered him to the ground at gunpoint. Four officers then approached him in anticipation of handcuffing him. But Rodney resisted. He stood up, which caused two of the officers to fall off his back. Around here is when Rodney King was tasered. If you look closely in the movie, you can see the taser wire from an officer on the left side of the footage going to Rodney. This is also roughly the point that the footage began. This footage was shot by a man named George Holliday, who lived in an apartment nearby. That's where he shot the footage from. After Rodney King was tasered, this is when the officers started beating him with their batons. At one point, Rodney rose to his feet and charged forward, although it's never been determined if he was charging at one of the officers or if he was trying to escape. Regardless, this opened up a new flurry of beatings. In all, Rodney King was struck 33 times with batons and another six kicks from the police officers. It wasn't until two days later that George Holliday tried to get someone at the LAPD to look at the footage of the incident that he had shot. No one was interested. So, instead, he took it to a local TV station. That's where it blew up, causing an understandable outrage with how the police treated Rodney King. Even though the movie doesn't show it, on April 29, 1992, the police officers on the tape who beat Rodney were acquitted by the jury. The charges were dropped. Rioting began hours later. The riots continued for the rest of April and into May. Today, we refer to them as the 1992 Los Angeles riots that saw the LAPD call for help from tens of thousands of soldiers and officials from California National Guard, the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, the DEA, the ATF, and even two divisions of the U.S. military being brought to Los Angeles. By the time it was done, over 12,000 arrests were made, over 2,000 people were injured, and 63 people lost their lives. Despite an end to the riots, as far as many people were concerned, the issue of racist police brutality was left unresolved. Going back to the movie, after that introduction, we're sent back in time. All the movie gives us as far as context as we see a street sign for the Dudley Street Station is some text saying that we're in Boston during, quote, the war years, end quote. The camera follows Spike Lee's character. Yes, in addition to writing and directing, Spike Lee also plays the character of Shorty. 
He walks over to a barbershop where we see Denzel Washington's version of Malcolm X for the first time. Although, in the movie, he's not Malcolm X yet. He's Malcolm Little. After a brief, comical bit in the barbershop, Denzel's voiceover explains Malcolm's childhood. According to the movie, a party of Klansmen surrounded their house in Omaha, Nebraska. They yelled for his father, who we hear them call Earl Little, to come out of his house. Then we see Malcolm's mother, who is pregnant, go out and tell the Klansmen that Earl isn't home. He's in Milwaukee preaching. The Klansmen then proceed to break all the windows in the house, terrifying Malcolm's mother and the three little children that we see inside. Denzel Washington's narration continues to explain that his father followed Marcus Garvey, a man who preached that black Americans couldn't find freedom, independence, and self-respect in the United States. Instead, he preached black men should return to Africa. As for his mother, Denzel's version of Malcolm explains that she was fair-skinned because her mother was raped by a white man. She hated her complexion and, according to the movie, she married Malcolm's father in part because he was so black. While the events we see in the movie are obviously dramatized, the basic gist of all of that is true. But as you can guess, there's more to the story. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. The man we know of today as Malcolm X was born to Earl and Louise Little on May 19, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. Only a decade earlier had seen the start of what we now refer to as the Second Klan, a reorganization of the Ku Klux Klan after it had died away post-Civil War in 1871. This resurgence of the racist organization saw an estimated 3 to 6 million people being a part of the KKK, with most historians guessing that the highest numbers peaked the year Malcolm was born, 1925. The movie is also correct in showing that Earl Little was a preacher, a Baptist minister, actually. Reverend Earl Little was, like the movie shows, harassed by the local KKK members. A big part of this was probably because Earl was outspoken for black rights. That other name the movie mentions, Marcus Garvey, was a real person. 
He founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League in 1914, while Marcus was living in Jamaica. Two years later, Marcus moved to the United States in Harlem in New York, and his beliefs started to gain a following. The basic idea for that organization was racial pride and economic self-sufficiency. Marcus also believed that, like the movie suggests, that neither one of those things could happen in the United States. So he suggested black men and women move to Africa to start an independent nation. The movie doesn't mention this, but even though a lot of people believed in Marcus Garvey's vision, they didn't like that he wanted to be the president of that new nation himself. For this reason, Marcus and the NAACP had an ongoing feud soon after his arrival in the U.S. However, Earl and Louise Little were among the people who believed in Marcus's vision. In fact, Earl was the local leader of Marcus's UNIA organization. So that's probably why the members of the KKK painted a target on the Little family. And, just like the movie shows, when Reverend Little was preaching in Milwaukee, a group of KKK men on horseback showed up at their home. Louise was pregnant with Malcolm at the time, and when she stood up to the men so they could see that she was pregnant, they responded pretty much the same way the movie shows, by breaking all the windows in their house using their rifles. What the movie doesn't show was that after Earl returned home, he was furious. Of course he was. Who wouldn't be? Malcolm would later recall his father wasn't afraid of the KKK, so he's not sure why they moved, but they did. They decided to wait until Louise had the baby, though. And, as we already learned, Malcolm was born on May 19, 1925. In early 1926, the Little family moved to Milwaukee. Then, soon after, they moved to Lansing, Michigan. This is where most of Malcolm's childhood was spent, although moving further north did not stop the racist threats. In 1929, the Little's home was burned down. Officially, there's never been an explanation as to who was behind it, but Earl Little was sure it was the Black Legions, another racist white supremacist group, a lot like the KKK, who had been harassing the family ever since they moved to Lansing. Then, things got worse. Again, the official story differs from what most close to the incident believe. This time, the official record reflects that Earl Little died in an accident. Other stories surrounding the incident said that Earl was beaten and forced to lie down on a streetcar track until he was run over by the car. Not to get too far ahead of where we are in the movie's timeline, but we see flashbacks of this later on in the film. Earl's body was nearly cut in half. His head was smashed in. Earl died in 1931 when little Malcolm was only six years old. As you can imagine, all of this had an incredible impact on Malcolm while he was growing up. He stayed in Michigan until, while in junior high, he moved in with his half-sister in Boston. The movie doesn't really mention what year it is when we see Malcolm Little in Boston, only that it's the war years. That's a reference to World War II, but we know from history that he lived there for about 10 years starting in 1939, so throughout the entire time the United States was involved in the war. But that's getting ahead of our story. So let's ha Oh, before we do that, I think it's worth pointing out that Spike Lee's character, Shorty, was a real person as well. I could never find out what his real name was because everybody just called him Shorty, but he befriended Malcolm in Boston because Shorty was also from Lansing, Michigan. Now, let's hop back to the movie's timeline, where the next major plot point we see happens in 1944, when Malcolm and Shorty are hanging out together. 
This happens in a club where we see Shorty and Malcolm dancing with some girls. Malcolm's girlfriend, Laura, who's played by Teresa Randall in the movie, goes to freshen up after a big dance. While she's doing that, Malcolm notices Sophia from across the room. She's played by Kate Vernon in the movie. Later that evening, Malcolm walks Laura home, and she's pretty cold to him. Understandably, for sure. As he's saying goodnight, she suggests that he's just going to see Sophia. He denies this, saying he'll call her, Laura, in the morning. Then Laura says something to the effect of, What's the point? I'm not white, and I don't put out. The basic plot here is true. Although the real woman's name was not Sophia. That's the name Malcolm X gave her in his autobiography as a fake name to tell the story. But as the story goes, after Laura went home, Malcolm rushed back to go for a drive with Sophia. They didn't drive for long, though. Before long, just like we see in the movie, the car is pulled off to the side of the road and shut off. And, well, I think we know what happened next. Malcolm wasn't proud of this. As he explained in his autobiography, to be a black man dating a white woman was sort of a status symbol. For the next few months, Malcolm and Sophia became a thing. Heading back to the movie after hooking up with Sophia, Malcolm travels to Harlem thanks to his job at a railroad company. While there, he's in a bar one evening when there's an altercation that sees Malcolm smashing a bottle over another man's face after he disrespects Malcolm's mother. After this, Malcolm meets a man by the name of West Indian Archie. He's played by Delroy Lindo in the movie. Speaking of which, the movie clarifies pretty quickly that Archie's nickname, West Indian Archie, isn't because Archie is from India, the country of India, but rather that he's from the West Indies. This is something Malcolm's familiar with. Even though he's not been there himself, his mother was from Granada. During their conversation, Malcolm impresses Archie and vice versa. When Malcolm asks how he can get a hold of Archie, he reaches for paper and pencil. Archie shakes it off. No, don't write anything down. Pointing to his head, Archie says, you need to file everything up here, like I do. If the man doesn't have any paper, they can't prove anything. Malcolm starts working for Archie, running numbers in a gambling scheme. Then, one evening, Malcolm, Sophia, and Archie are doing cocaine when Malcolm decides to place a bet with Archie. Later, we don't really know how much later, Malcolm is at the bar with Archie and Sophia when Malcolm says he's thinking about his money. What? Archie asks. Malcolm says his number hit. You owe me six big ones. Archie laughs. You didn't have 821. The mood grows cold. Malcolm says he'll drop it, but insists Archie is slipping. Archie, obviously upset, drops six $100 bills on the table before he gets up and leaves. There is some truth to that, but there's more to the story. In the movie, it seems like Malcolm goes straight from working on the railroad to working for Archie. That's not really how it happened. What happened was that while Malcolm worked for the railroad, he liked to go to some poker games that used to take place at Grand Central Station. One time, cops busted the game while Malcolm was there. No one was arrested, but the run-in with the cops at the station was enough for Malcolm to lose his job at the railroad. Oh, and even though Malcolm was armed with a pistol, the cops didn't find it because he hid it in the small of his back. The cops didn't think to look there. In the movie, Archie is the one who tells Malcolm to do this, but in truth, Malcolm did this of his own accord. After this, Malcolm did what he could to make a living off the streets of Harlem. 
Primarily, this meant robberies and a string of drug use that helped him stay cool during those robberies. Only after this was when Malcolm met up with Archie. The movie is correct in showing that Archie ran a numbers game and Malcolm started running those numbers for him. What the movie doesn't do, and if you're like me, you're wondering, what is the numbers game? So, real quick, basically it's a lottery. It was illegal, as you can probably guess, but that didn't mean it wasn't extremely popular, especially with the working class Americans around the nation. The basic idea was that each day there was a new number. You placed a bet on what that number would be, very much like the lottery today. There'd be three levels involved. The banker, that was the person that held the bets and the tally of who had what bets. Then there was the runner, which was the middleman between you and the banker. They would tell the banker what your bet was. And then there's you, the person betting by giving the runner what number you think will win. Then when that day's number is picked, if you pick the right number, you win. The runner would give you your winnings from the banker. How did they determine that day's number? Well, that varied depending on what city you were in. One of the more common ways was to pick the last digits in a series of numbers. For example, let's say the New York Stock Exchange traded 13,150 stocks one day. Well, before that day, the game would basically determine that the winning number would be the last three digits of however many stocks were traded the following day. So, If 13,151 stocks were traded, in that example, the number of the day would be 151. Or maybe it would be a series of numbers from different sources. So maybe it's the last number of the New York Stock Exchange trades, the first number of the market cap at closing, and the second number from the Ford stock at closing. Those are just random examples. But in that example, if there's 13,151 stocks traded, the last number is one. If the market cap is, let's say, 959,213, then the first number in that would be nine. And if Ford stocks closed at $5.21, then that number, the second number in that would be two. So that would mean that 192 would be that day's number. And of course, you can do different combinations. So it would be 192, 921, uh, 219, and so on. Of course, That is also just an example with much smaller numbers. The market cap hopefully will be more than a million, but it's just to uh, simplify that example. And sometimes those numbers would be from the stock exchange. Sometimes it'd be from racetracks. The source of the numbers would vary, but the idea was that it would hopefully be something random. At least that's what gave people the idea that it was a fair bet. This was what Malcolm got involved in during his days in Harlem gambling and robbing. But he didn't run into Archie because of an altercation in a bar like the movie makes it seem. Instead, Malcolm had a different runner that he'd give his numbers to when he was gambling. But then after a bad streak, he decided to change his runner. That's when he found Archie, who was known for being a great runner due to his photographic memory. Just like the movie shows, Archie never wrote down his numbers. That's what helped him move up the ladder in the game until he was practically running it in Harlem. Because of his popularity, a lot of people wanted to work with Archie. Not everyone could, though. Malcolm did, and that helped Malcolm's reputation. The movie doesn't give any sort of indication for timing, but it was in 1945 when Malcolm's relationship with Archie went sour. And it was, like the movie shows, because of a bet. But it didn't go down like the movie shows. Even though Malcolm placed his own bets with Archie, he'd also started working with him as a runner. Sometimes Malcolm's own bets would hit. 
Sometimes they didn't. One day, Malcolm collected on a bet he'd made, $300 winnings for a 50-cent bet. Not bad. In 1945, $300 would be about the same as $4,200 today. As he always did, Archie paid Malcolm without any question. That evening, Malcolm went to the bar with a pretty girl on his arm and money burning a hole in his pocket. The next day, Malcolm was awoken by an angry Archie banging on his door. It seemed that after giving Malcolm the money, Archie had gone back to the banker, as he always did. That was the only time Archie ever wrote down the numbers when he went back to the banker to give them to the banker. At that point, Archie was certain Malcolm had bet on a different number. That would mean that Malcolm didn't win at all. But Archie had paid him the $300 out of his pocket, trusting Malcolm. Have you ever been so sure of something at the time, but as soon as someone else casts doubt, then you start to doubt it yourself? That's sort of what happened here. In the movie, the number was 821, but there's nothing I could find to let us know if that was the number or not. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle where both sides were so sure right up until the other party started to cast doubt on it. But the number of the day and the number Malcolm bet is really neither here nor there. The result was pretty much the same as the movie. Malcolm said he bet a number that won. Archie said Malcolm bet a different number. So when Archie barged into Malcolm's room the next day, he wanted the $300 back. Except Malcolm had been spending the money the night before, so he didn't have it all. Archie left in a rage, telling Malcolm that he had until noon the next day. It wasn't really about the money, even though Malcolm hadn't spent all of it on that night before. Their relationship was one that saw thousands of dollars exchanging hands. It was a matter of trust. That trust was broken. Malcolm had a choice. He could stick around and face Archie, or he could run, leave town, and never come back. The next day, when Archie found Malcolm again to get the rest of his money, it was a showdown at gunpoint. Malcolm nearly tried to reach for his own gun and catch Archie off guard until, well, until Archie called him on it. Archie knew what Malcolm was going to try to do, so he reminded Malcolm that he was young. Archie, on the other hand, was nearly 60 years old and he'd spent time in Sing Sing, one of the oldest prisons in the U.S. that's still in operation as of this recording. Archie's point was clear. If Malcolm killed Archie, he'd ruin his own life more than he'd ruin Archie's. As you can probably guess, neither Archie nor Malcolm pulled the trigger that day. But the trust that had been lost was never regained, so their working relationship was over. Going back to the movie, after the falling out with Archie, Malcolm goes back to Boston. While he's there, he reconnects with Spike Lee's character, Shorty. Their lifestyle doesn't improve much, though, and both Malcolm and Shorty start pulling small-time robberies. That ends when we see the police raid in their apartment, and they arrest Shorty and Malcolm, along with Sophia and Shorty's girlfriend, a woman named Peg. The next scene we see is in a courtroom where we see the judge sentence Sophia and Peg to two years in a woman's reformatory. They were first-time offenders, so they got off easy. But then, the movie points out that Shorty and Malcolm were also first-time offenders, and yet, the judge charges them with 14 different robbery charges, each of them for 8 to 10 years at the Charlestown State Prison, to be served concurrently at the same time. The implication here is clear. Sophia and Peg are white women, while Shorty and Malcolm are black men. The latter got a heavier sentence from a judge who seemed to be basing this decision on the color of their skin. 
Denzel's voiceover tells us that this is February of 1946 when the sentence was thrown down. Before we continue, though, I think it's worth pointing out the little cameo here. The racist judge is being played by a man named William Kunstler. If you're not familiar with who he was, Kunstler made a name for himself as a lawyer working civil rights cases in the late 1950s and 60s as he defended countless men and women who had been subjected to prejudice by the American judicial system. So basically, exactly like what we see happening here in the movie. Kunstler never served as a lawyer for the real Malcolm X, though, but he did make a mark on civil rights in the United States and even served as director of the ACLU between 1964 and 1977. That aside, though, the movie is correct in showing that Malcolm Little was arrested and sent to Charlestown State Prison. Although the burglaries didn't happen with just one accomplice like the movie implies, Malcolm actually had four accomplices, including Shorty. The way we saw Malcolm and Shorty get arrested as the only two men in the room, is also incorrect. They weren't arrested at the same time or in the same place, but they were both arrested. As for the other two accomplices, it would seem that one of the accomplices was never charged. The cops apparently never knew about him, while the other one, a man named Rudy, managed to get away. It was, just like the movie shows, in February of 1946 when Malcolm started serving an 8-10 to year sentence for his crimes. As for the women... The movie is also correct that they got less time. And in truth, there was a lot more racism throughout the experience that the movie doesn't show. Everyone from court clerks to bailiffs to court-appointed lawyers seemed to hone in on the white women arrested with black men. The fact that they were all charged with the same crimes didn't seem to matter as much. The women got one to five years at the Women's Reformatory in Framingham, Massachusetts, while Malcolm and Shorty got eight to ten years at Charlestown State Prison in Boston, Massachusetts. Speaking of the movie, heading back to its timeline now, we find Denzel Washington's version of Malcolm in prison. While he's there, he meets a man named Baines, who's portrayed by Albert Hall. When Malcolm asks Baines what his hype is, Baines says that he can show Malcolm how to get out of prison. No hype. Oh yeah? Talk. Baines goes on to tell Malcolm how even if he were to get out of the physical prison, you wouldn't be free. Elijah Muhammad can get you out of prison, the prison of your mind. The basic gist of that is true, but as far as I can tell, Baines is actually a composite character. Probably the closest real person that he would be would be an older burglar that Malcolm met in prison named Bimby. It was Bimby who helped Malcolm learn the importance of reading, and through reading, gaining knowledge. However, it was a mixture of characters who introduced Malcolm to the Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam. The movie also speed things up quite a bit by making it seem like this happens right after Malcolm is sent to prison. In truth, it was a couple years after he was sent to prison that Malcolm first learned about the Nation of Islam. By this time, he'd been transferred to the Colcord prison when he got a letter from one of his friends. In the letter, his friend, a man named Philbert, told Malcolm that he had joined the Nation of Islam. Then, later, another letter arrived from Malcolm. This time it was from Reginald, who was probably one of Malcolm's closest friends during his Harlem days. Reginald said that he knew a way for Malcolm to get out of prison and told him to stop smoking cigarettes and to stop eating pork. Malcolm didn't really know what he meant, but was determined to do whatever he had to do to get out. So he stopped smoking and stopped eating pork. 
All this time, Malcolm's sister, Ella, had been petitioning the courts to get her brother transferred to a better prison, Norfolk Prison Colony. That finally paid off when he was transferred there at the end of 1948. One major benefit of this for Malcolm was that the colony's visitation rules were more lenient than the other prisons that he had been at. That allowed Reginald to come visit Malcolm. And finally, answer the question that Malcolm had wondered. How will not eating pork and not smoking help me get out of prison? According to Malcolm X's autobiography, Reginald explained that God is a man who has 360 degrees of knowledge. He knows everything. God's real name is Allah. And he has revealed himself to Elijah Muhammad, a black man. Then, Reginald continued to explain that on the other end of that spectrum, the devil only has 33 degrees of knowledge. He told Malcolm that the white man is the devil. And worst of all, where the 33 degrees comes from? The Masons. After Reginald left, Malcolm was left with plenty of time to do nothing but think. He'd certainly had a hard time with racism in his life but he'd known some good white men too. Oh, and there's a brief moment in the movie where Denzel Washington's version of Malcolm Little confronts the prison's priest. He's played by Christopher Plummer. Malcolm asks what color Jesus and the disciples were. When the priest says, we don't know for certain, Malcolm says that Jesus wasn't white, to which the priest shoots back, God is white. Can't you see? He points to a painting behind him of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Malcolm says, Yes, I can see the painting that he's white in, but Jesus was a Hebrew. But that Elijah Muhammad teaches us that the paintings and depictions that we see throughout the churches are not historically correct. That confrontation actually happened, although in truth the priest never said that God is white. He really wasn't a priest yet either. He was a seminary student. But after giving a sermon on Paul, Malcolm raised his hand to ask what color Paul was. That's not the kind of question he expected, but the student admitted that, yes, Paul was a Hebrew and the original Hebrews were black, so Paul was probably black. Then, when the question of Jesus' color came up, the entire class was enthralled. No one had ever thought to question the countless paintings that show Jesus to be white throughout history. After a pause, the student said that Jesus was brown. It was a compromise. Malcolm stopped pushing it after that. Going back to the movie, Malcolm's conversion to Islam means he must bend his knees in prayer. He has trouble doing this at first. Then he's finally able to bend his knees in prayer to Allah after being visited by Elijah Muhammad, the founder and leader of the nation of Islam in his cell, a vision that, according to the movie, was no dream. Then, after being paroled from prison, he goes to Chicago to meet Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm tears up meeting the man who inspired such a change in his life. Elijah Muhammad reminds him that the world is still full of temptation, but I believe you will be faithful. Malcolm says he will. After this, we see Malcolm start preaching on the street. Along with other members of the Nation of Islam, he's handing out flyers and speaking to whomever will listen. Although I couldn't find anything about a vision like we see in the movie, it is true that Malcolm had trouble bending his knee in prayer. It wasn't Baines who told Malcolm how to pray like we see in the movie. Instead, after writing a letter to Elijah Muhammad, it was the reply that encouraged Malcolm to bend his knee in prayer. Not only that, but letters from his family also helped him. But still, it was hard. Malcolm would later recall that the act of praying was the hardest test he'd ever faced. It took him a week to finally bend his knee in prayer. 
Oh, and there's another important bit the movie doesn't mention. Well, it sort of does. By that, what I'm referring to is when we see the movie briefly mentioned that Malcolm wrote letters to a bunch of his old friends, the hustlers and people he ran with. We see a letter go to Shorty, another to Archie. The reason this is important is because it was around this time after Malcolm had finally bent his knee in prayer to Allah that he started writing letters to anyone and everyone that he could think of. He started telling them about the nation of Islam and the teachings of Elijah Muhammad that he'd come to believe. As the movie briefly mentions, he even wrote to the president of the United States at the time, Harry S. Truman. Of course, Truman never responded, but it was around this time that the FBI opened up a file on Malcolm Little because of that letter. And that brings us to the bit of importance. Little. It was around this time that Malcolm Little became Malcolm X for the first time. As he would later explain, the name Little had been given to his ancestors by slave masters. He was renouncing that name. Oh, and in the movie, the character of Baines tells Malcolm that he needs to learn all the words in the dictionary to uncover their true meaning. That's not really what happened. What really happened was that after Malcolm started writing so many letters, he started getting frustrated with his lack of knowledge. He couldn't express his thoughts in his head on paper. He turned to his friend, the well-read Bimby, who suggested Malcolm start studying the dictionary. So he did. But the movie did get the year of Malcolm's parole correct, 1952. It was in August of 1952, actually, which meant that Malcolm X served six years in prison. There's another brief moment in the movie to touch on. That's when we see Malcolm go to the Bronx to visit West Indian Archie. In the movie, it looks like Archie's had a stroke and doesn't seem to be able to walk. Denzel's version of Malcolm lets himself into Archie's apartment and thanks him for saving his life back in Harlem. That visit did happen, but I couldn't find anything to suggest that Archie had had a stroke like the movie says. He was elderly. Remember, he was in his 60s a decade or so earlier when Malcolm worked for him. And he was sick. But he also greeted Malcolm at the door when he knocked. And after a while, he remembered and the two had a chat. Oh, and the topic of the number did come up too. Although in the movie, Denzel's version of Malcolm says he doesn't even remember what the number he had was when, in truth, Malcolm told Archie that he really did believe he had that number. But then the two decided it was time to put it to rest. It was time to put it in the past. Going back to the movie, we see Malcolm giving a speech in a small room. After the speech ends, there's that kind of moment in a movie where the movie doesn't say anything about the character, but because it's a big-name actor, you know that they'll play a big part in the film. This time, it's Angela Bassett's character, who we see clapping along with the rest of the audience to Malcolm's speech. Then, afterward, Baines introduces her to Malcolm as Sister Betty. The two hit it off quickly and interspersed around a few other scenes where we see Malcolm's power in the Nation of Islam growing as he's named the National Minister – we also see Malcolm call up Betty on the phone to propose to her. Before long, the two are married. The movie doesn't give any sort of indication of time, but we know from history that Malcolm and Betty were married in 1958. And yes, Malcolm really did propose to her over the phone. Then, two days later, they were married. Even though their relationship seems to move very quickly in the movie, and obviously getting married two days after proposing is fast, but the movie implies the relationship moved a lot faster than it really did. By that, what I mean is from the moment we see Betty and Malcolm meet until they're married in the movie doesn't seem to be that long. 
The movie doesn't give us a time span there, but that happened over a little less than three years. Betty met Malcolm for the first time in 1955, and they were married in January of 1958. Although, the timeline in the movie seems to be a bit off, because, as best as I can tell, even though Malcolm X did become the first national minister for the Nation of Islam, it didn't happen before he married Betty in 1958, like the movie shows. The reason I say, as best as I can tell, is because I found some conflicting dates based on different sources. But they're all after 1958, with most of them seeming to say either 1961 or 1962 is probably when Elijah Muhammad appointed Malcolm as the national minister. Back in the movie, while Malcolm and Betty are sitting at home, we quickly realize it's time for them to have one of those conversations. Betty starts by asking Malcolm if they've ever had a fight. No, never, Malcolm says. Then, Betty says, they're about to have one if we don't talk about it. It's clear Malcolm knows what she's talking about, but we don't learn what it is until Becky picks up the paper. If you pause the movie here, you can see the headline on the paper. It says, quote, two Muslim women ask cult leader for support, end quote. We can't see what the article itself says, but Betty starts reading the paper. The 67-year-old leader of the Black Muslim Movement is facing paternity suits from two former secretaries, Betty reads. Malcolm denies these accusations, telling Betty they're flat-out lies. This is the devil's newspaper, and he's trying to divide us by tearing down our leader. But Betty isn't so convinced. Are you so dedicated that you've blinded yourself to the truth, she asks. And the fight continues. Betty's pleading with Malcolm to open his eyes. Then Malcolm goes to visit the women who claim their children are Elijah Muhammad's. Finally, he's convinced. This is a huge deal because it went against Elijah Muhammad's own teachings for the Nation of Islam. This happened, and it was the beginning of the end for Malcolm's involvement in the Nation of Islam. The movie again doesn't tell us what year this is, but we know from history this was 1963. Reflecting back on these events, Malcolm acknowledged hearing about rumors of Elijah Muhammad's inappropriate behavior as far back as 1955, just three years after Malcolm got out of prison. But for a long time, he refused to believe it. For a long time, everyone refused to believe it. And because adultery was abhorrent to the nation, the women who ended up being pregnant would often be tried, charged with adultery, and sent off to isolation basically shut away without being able to contact any other Muslims. In this way, the nation was covering it all up. We don't really know if this was on purpose or if, like Malcolm X, many in the nation simply couldn't fathom that Elijah Muhammad could be guilty of adultery. So, just like the movie shows, Malcolm investigated on his own. He broke protocol and looked up some of the women who were still in their isolated state. These women who claimed to have Elijah Muhammad's children. He found out that not only were these not just stories, but that Elijah Muhammad had been badmouthing Malcolm X behind his back. He'd been telling the women that Malcolm was dangerous, not someone to be trusted. Finally, Malcolm went to talk to Elijah Muhammad himself. He confronted the leader, asking him to explain the things that were being said about him. When he did, Elijah Muhammad did not deny any of it. Instead, he referenced men in the Bible who had done similar things. For example, the story of King David, who stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. While this was happening, something else happened that we see in the movie. What I'm referring to, 
is when on November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Soon after, Malcolm X is asked by the media for comments on the event. In the movie, we see Denzel's version of Malcolm X reply to the reporters by saying, when you send out chickens, you expect them to come home to you at the end of the day. The violence he's perpetrated here and abroad has finally come back. It's the devil's chickens coming home to roost. And that is the same metaphor the real Malcolm X used when he was asked about the assassination following a speech he gave on December 4th, 1963. Today, it's referred to as the chickens coming home to roost speech simply because of the answer that Malcolm gave after the speech about Kennedy's assassination. That answer struck so deep that it was extremely controversial. After the assassination, the nation was in shock, and that wasn't the answer a lot of people wanted to hear. Even though Malcolm claimed his words were misinterpreted and he had simply meant that hatred had spread so much to create a society in which the assassination could be possible, Elijah Muhammad decided to suspend Malcolm X for 90 days, keeping him from speaking to the press on behalf of the Nation of Islam for that time. Already upset with everything we learned about Elijah Muhammad's adultery and believing that the coming home to roost bit had only been an excuse for the suspension, on March 8, 1964, Malcolm X publicly announced he was leaving the Nation of Islam. Back in the movie, after leaving the Nation of Islam, we see Malcolm take a pilgrimage to Mecca. We see Denzel's version of Malcolm stop by the Great Pyramids and the Sphinx. It's the trip of a lifetime. At one point, we see Malcolm praying alongside his Muslim brothers, including white men. This trip really happened. It was in April of 1964 when Malcolm decided to take the pilgrimage to Mecca. It was eye-opening for Malcolm. Once outside America, he was amazed at the kindness of total strangers. While he was in Cairo, there were other Muslims who were on the same journey who hugged as though they were friends, even though they were total strangers. And there were people of all colors. Race didn't matter. This sort of common bond beyond race made a huge impact on Malcolm. He'd later write that it was this trip that proved to him that people of all races can come together as one through the power of God. Oh, and even though the movie doesn't mention it, it was somewhere around here that Malcolm X gave him the surname Shabazz, or more specifically, El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Although, because of his popularity as Malcolm X, a lot of people still called him that, and since the movie does too, that's what I'll call him throughout the remainder of this episode. Back in the movie, after returning home to the United States, Malcolm calls a press conference and announces he now has friends of all races. He's willing to work with any other civil rights leaders as long as they're working toward real, positive results. One of the reporters asks Malcolm about his former comments about having black men get guns to form rifle clubs. And that really was one of the questions that Malcolm X faced as soon as his plane arrived back in the U.S. His reply was similar to what we see in the movie, too. Basically, when white people are allowed to have guns, it's constitutional for self-defense. When black people have them, for some reason... That's seen as ominous. Then, Malcolm went on to explain that even though he had made sweeping statements about all white people before, he will never do that again. His trip to Mecca showed him that all races can live together in harmony. However, he was also very careful to point out that racism was still a problem in America. Going back to the movie, after this, we see Malcolm at home getting a phone call. He's carrying a gun when he answers it. The caller on the other end says something to the effect of, Your days are numbered, Malcolm. 
Later, while Malcolm is at home in bed with Betty, he senses something isn't right. Just then, we see someone throw a firebomb into their house. Then there's another one. Fortunately, it appears that Malcolm, Betty, and their kids are able to make it out of the house unharmed. The house behind them is engulfed in flame. Then, later, Baines tells the media that he thinks Malcolm burned his own house down as a publicity stunt. The movie doesn't give an indication of time here, but that actually happened on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1965. They were, like the movie suggests, some Molotov cocktails that had been thrown in the front window of their home. Fortunately, the movie is correct in showing that everyone got out safe. Although, it's also correct in stating that someone said they thought it was a publicity stunt. Although it wasn't the fictional Baines character, but it was a minister in the Nation of Islam who told the media he thought Malcolm did it in an attempt to get publicity. That did not make Malcolm happy. Back in the movie, Malcolm is getting ready to give another speech at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. He's still getting death threats, enough so that Malcolm decides to stay at a hotel room the night before, just so his family won't get caught up in any violence, should it happen. But nothing happens that night. The next day, Malcolm goes to the Audubon. He gets up on stage and begins his speech. Then someone yells something in the back. Two men stand up arguing. Then one of the men throws down what appears to be some kind of a smoke grenade. People scream and chaos ensues. While everyone is focused on what's going on in the back, we see a man in a trench coat run up to the front. He's carrying something. It's a shotgun. He aims and shoots. The podium splinters into pieces as Malcolm falls back from the force of the blast. Then, after he's already on the ground, two men step up with pistols and keep shooting repeatedly at Malcolm's body. The camera cuts to Malcolm's kids in the audience as they're watching their dad get murdered in front of their eyes. That is true. One thing the movie doesn't mention, though, was when Malcolm X told an interviewer on February 19th that he believed the Nation of Islam was trying to kill him. Two days later, on February 21st, it happened. And even though the movie is a dramatic recreation of the events, it does a pretty good job of showing what happened based on the reports of those who were there. There were about 400 people in the audience that day. First, there was the distraction. Someone in the back saying, Take your hand out of my pocket. Malcolm tried to calm them down. Hold it, hold it. With everyone focused on the people in the back, including Malcolm, no one even paid attention to the men who made their way to the front. One witness who happened to glance back and see them said it looked like a firing line, three of them. Another witness said there were only two, but one had a shotgun while the other had two pistols. Speaking of witnesses, yes, the movie is correct in showing that Betty was there, along with her kids. Malcolm was shot 21 times, including the initial shotgun blast that left 10 buckshot wounds. In the ensuing panic, just like the movie shows, one of the gunmen was caught by the crowd. They went on to beat him until the police arrived. From February 23rd to February 26th, a funeral was held for Malcolm X that saw somewhere around 20,000 people show up to pay their respects. Then, in March, three gunmen were charged with the murder and sentenced to life in prison. One of them died in prison in 2009, while the other two have since been released. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Now, I have a confession to make. One of the reasons why I picked to do this episode, other than the multiple requests that I got for it, was because I realized I didn't really know a lot about Malcolm X's life. 
Denzel Washington said the same thing when he was picked to play the role, and one of the ways that he prepared for the role was to watch a ton of footage of Malcolm X and also to read the autobiography and more books about him. And so, if there's one takeaway from this episode, I hope it inspires you to do the same and learn more about Malcolm X's life. There's just so much we didn't get to cover, or could even hope to cover in a single episode. So, as we always do, I'll leave you with some resources to start learning more. I'd recommend the first place you go is to pick up Malcolm X's autobiography. It's simply called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Another great book is Malcolm, The Life of a Man Who Changed Black America by Bruce Perry. As always, I've got links to both of those books as well as plenty more resources to start your own deep dive into the life of Malcolm X over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Malcolm X was assassinated in front of his family. Number two, Malcolm X spent over five years in prison before converting to Islam. Number three, Malcolm X wrote a letter to President Kennedy while he was in prison. Did you find out which one is a lie? As we learned, Malcolm's family was there that day on February 21st, 1965, when he was assassinated, so number one is true. We also learned that Malcolm X spent six years in prison, so number two is true. Although I guess with a technicality, I did say spent over five years in prison before converting to Islam, and he converted to Islam while he was in prison, so I guess maybe on a technicality you could say that is the lie. I'll give it to you if that's what you say. But the one that I picked out as the lie is really a very obvious lie because we learned that even though Malcolm did write a letter to the president of the United States while he was in prison, it was not President Kennedy, but it was President Harry Truman. So that means number three is the lie. And as this episode comes to a close, you'll start listening to the next episode in your playlist, and that means that I need to get started on that incredibly time-consuming next episode of Based on a True Story about the return of the king. Don't forget you can find all the links for this episode, request a future episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, and you can also toss in some support for the show to keep me going for another week to get that Return of the King episode out over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.